The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here, and uh, friends, it's great to be with you. If you're a guest or a visitor, we are glad that you're with us this morning, and you're joining us as we are beginning a new sermon series in the book of 1 John. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 John. Uh, 1 John is near the back of our Bibles, so if you just flip to the back, um, you know, if you hit Revelation, you went a little too far. Uh, go back a little bit to the left, but we'll be looking at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John over the coming uh, weeks and months leading up to Easter. Uh, the majority of our time will be in 1st John. That's because 2nd and 3rd John are just single chapter books, so we should be able to move through those two uh, relatively quickly, but, but we'll be in 1st John, and, uh, and so if you have a Bible, please turn there. But 1 John is unlike some of the other New Testament uh, letters and books that maybe we're accustomed to. Uh, oftentimes, especially in the letters of Paul, we'll uh, see the letter beginning with a greeting, with a, uh, a way of the author introducing himself and, and the people that he's speaking to. So if you think about Paul, like he would write, like, you know, the Apostle Paul, you know, uh, uh, ambassador of Jesus to the church at wherever, Galatia, Corinth, Rome, wherever. We, we expect that. We expect it in these letters. It's a way of introducing us to the author, but also introducing us to the church to whom he's writing. But First John doesn't have that. There's no introduction. There's no greeting. In fact, there's nowhere in the book that John is actually declared to be the author and so why do we associate this with the disciple John, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John? Well, well, that's a good question. I'm, I'm glad you asked it. Um, but but uh, what, the reason why we believe that this is attributed to John, that it's accurate for us to speak of the Gospel writer John as the author of this, is, is for a couple of reasons. One of which is that the earliest church attributed to John. So even those who knew the Apostle John himself, they attributed this letter to him. So the early church, the patristics, they claimed that this was authored by John. But not only that, we also see a lot of the same themes and words and phrases that appear in the Gospel of John appearing in 1 John. And so because of these, this early attestation by the church, because of the literary connections, it it seems to point to Johannine authorship. That's a fun word. You can practice it later, impress your friends. Johannine, right? It's just a nice way to say John wrote it. But um, it, it points to the fact that John is the author. And it was written probably no later than the early 90s AD, which is in the lifetime, the lifespan of John, very early to the life of Jesus. And we think that this was a circular letter. Now, what that means is that this was written probably not to a particular church at a particular time in a particular moment, but it was actually written to a series of churches in a particular region. And so it would have circulated from church to church. That's why we call it a circular letter. Now, we don't know much about these churches. We speculate that it was probably in the region of Ephesus. But, but what we can tell from the passage itself, from the letter itself, is that the church was experiencing false teaching. And they were needing encouragement. 
And so John writes about themes like life and light and fellowship and faith. But one of the main reasons that he writes this, there's a few reasons, but one of the main reasons is actually told to us in John, 1 John 5, verse 13. There the apostle writes this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So you hear what one of the reasons for writing this is. He's, he's writing to those who already claim to have faith in Christ, who have already embraced Jesus and the gospel. And what he's saying is to you, church, to you, believer, I'm writing these things so that you can know that your faith is sure, so that you can have assurance in the things that you have believed. And so he's writing to people like us, in a time when they need to be assured that the things that they have heard and believed and embraced are true. And John begins to assure us of our faith by proclaiming the source of our faith. That's how, where he begins in 1 John 1. And so follow along the first four verses of chapter 1. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask as we come to it now that you would assure us not of our good deeds, not of our right thinking, but you would assure us of Jesus, of the life that he provides, of the faith that we proclaim and embrace. Assure us that our faith is true and good. And do this for your sake. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were to take a look at my computer, there would be no denying that it's mine. Just one glimpse, one look upon it, and you would know that it's pennies. Not because of the keyboard, it's not laid out in some funny foreign language. Not because of the screen, no, it's the same size as every other 13-inch MacBook Air. Not because of the trackpad, it works the same as the other MacBooks do. No, the reason why you would know that it's mine is because of the case. You see, plastered all over my case are stickers. <laughs> stickers of some of my favorite things. Stickers of the things that I love and I enjoy and that I affirm. I have stickers of my favorite pen store where I buy the ink for my fountain pen. I have a sticker for my favorite restaurant and my local bike shop, and I have a sticker that proclaims my allegiance to the greatest baseball team in the history of the world, the St. Louis Cardinals. And I have a sticker that supports my kids' soccer club. And with each of these stickers, I'm telling those who look at my computer, who look at me as I'm typing away on my keyboard, I'm telling others what it is that I love. I'm proclaiming what I value. And we all do this in some form or fashion. 
Maybe we don't deal with stickers, though, you know, some musicians on their guitar case, they plaster them with stickers, right, of the various places they like. Or, or we have our alma mater, a sticker on the back of our car, or we put a candidate's name in our front lawn. And in every instance of doing this, whether it's a sticker or a sign or whether it's simply telling others about the things that we enjoy, we are affirming those things that we love and value. We are promoting and proclaiming these things to others. And we all do it. You do it and so do I. And there's nothing wrong with doing it, is there? I mean, in fact, I I like to hear from y'all when you've gone to a nice restaurant and you're telling me about this new place that is open, and I'd be happy to tell you where you can buy a fountain pen. We love to promote and encourage and proclaim the things that we value and love. You do it, I do it, and John does it. Now, John doesn't do it with stickers and a computer, right? Those don't exist in his day, no. But when John does it, he does it with words. He writes and he speaks. We see it in verse 2. What does he proclaim? The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. You see, when John has opportunity to promote or to proclaim a message, the message that he proclaims is the message of eternal life. And in proclaiming this, he doesn't just speak of eternal life in the, in the abstract as some general idea. No, he proclaims and tells us the source of that life. We see it in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And then verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And so you hear what John is proclaiming, right? What this source of life is. It's not an ideal. It's not a philosophical movement. It's not a thought. It's a person. Right? We hear the language that he uses, the human language that he used. He, he heard, he had seen, he had looked upon, he had touched. It's not ideas, it's not kind of these ethereal sorts of things, but, but it's human. It's physical. It's fleshy. He's speaking of a person when he speaks of the source of eternal life. But we know this isn't just any person because John says that this one was from the beginning and that he is the word of life. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel of John, these words, these phrases should be reminiscent of what he wrote before. Because you remember the gospel of John begins, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so we hear these similar phrases, these similar themes John's picking up from his previous writing. First, John is hearkening back to the gospel of John. And he's telling us that the source of life is Jesus. That he is the one who was in the beginning. Before the heavens and the earth were formed. And before the universe was ever created, there was God. Before there was anything else in this world, anything for us to see or to touch or to to hear, there was God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect communion, in perfect relationship. And this one, Jesus, who was in the beginning, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. 
right? That's what we just celebrated for the last number of weeks, right? During the season of Advent. We were celebrating the fact that Jesus, who is transcendent, who was from the very beginning, he didn't remain distant, but he became imminent and close. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. That is what we celebrated. This Jesus who took on flesh, who John heard his voice and saw his face and touched his hand. You see, the source of eternal life is not moral behavior, and it's not philosophical ideals, and it's not the acceptance or rejection of societal norms. No, the source of life is the person of Christ. I mean, that's what John's saying in verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Eternal life was made manifest to us. Now, those things that we affirm, those things that we promote, those things that I already mentioned, and maybe others like restaurants and teams and schools, fountain pens. I like a fountain pen. I keep going back to it. It's right for us to enjoy them. It's right for us to cheer them on, right, our team. But But even as we enjoy them, even as we proclaim them, even as we promote them, we have to know and remember that that they're not enough. They bring us momentary joy, certainly. And they give us bits of pleasure, there is no doubt, but, but it is but momentary. It is fleeting. They can't give life. But what John is proclaiming It is something much deeper and far stronger and more sustaining. It is the one who is from the beginning and made manifest Jesus. And so we can have assurance. We can have assurance that our faith, it is rooted and grounded, not in in an idea, but in a person who actually lived, who was born and was raised, and and he lived and he died in our place, and he took our sin upon our himself and he rose to new life that is where our assurance is it's in this one who has come he is the source of life it is he that john and that we proclaim you see this proclamation of the source of life it is not just john's duty or his responsibility to do it is ours it is our privilege to declare that life comes only from christ But that's not all John proclaims. Not just the source of life, he also tells us about the fellowship of this life. We see it in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now that word fellowship, it's a very churchy word, isn't it? fellowship. I was thinking this past week, like, when, when are the times that I actually use the word fellowship? And I realized there's only two occasions. I think in the history of my life, in the 43 years I've been alive, I think I've used fellowship in two instances. One, in relation to the church, right, our time together, the, the uh, connections we have, and the other is in regards to Tolkien, Right, the first of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Fellowship of the Ring. Like, when else do we use the word fellowship other than these two occasions? 
right? Because fellowship seems to be a very churchy word, right? Churches have fellowship halls and fellowship hours and food and fellowship. And when we're talking about fellowship, we're ultimately oftentimes talking about what? Coffee, cookies, and small talk, right? I mean, that's what we do. And there's, listen, listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. There's nothing wrong with that. I like a good cup of coffee. I like a nice cookie, right? Some small talk's fine. But biblical fellowship is much more than that. Biblical fellowship is much deeper than that. You see, biblical fellowship is getting actually at union. It's getting at the union we have with one another and the union we have with God. I mean, that's what John says, right? He's proclaiming this message, this eternal life, so that you too may have fellowship with us. We're united together. This theme of being united together in fellowship is a theme throughout the New Testament, right? The Apostle Paul talks about it in regards to us being the body of Christ, right? The body of Christ. Some of us are ears, some eyes, noses, mouths, right? Kneecaps, elbows, right? We're, we're different parts of the body, but we are of one body. We're not of many bodies. We're of one body connected together. Right? Not net separate, not divergent bodies, one body of which every part is needed. He speaks of the body of Christ, the household of faith, that we are the family that God has brought together, the temple being built together. Or the way that Jesus speaks of it in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, he prays for his people, for his church, that we may be one. That is the union we have with one another. That we are one. Believers united together. You know what this means? This means that there is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. I mean, for goodness sakes, the Lone Ranger wasn't even alone, right? He had Tonto. (laughs) But we are not Lone Ranger Christians. Yes, we are saved as individuals. We are brought into the body of Christ, but we are brought into that body. We're united together. And this is why when one of us grieves and mourns, we mourn and grieve with them. And this is why when one of us celebrates and rejoices, we rejoice and celebrate with them. Because we're one. Now, I want you to think about all the ways in which people are connected together. I've already mentioned some of them, but... But those affinities, those likes, those neighborhoods, those vocation cities, countries of origin, right? These are all places where we touch one another. And we have those you too moments. This is what C.S. Lewis calls it in his wonderful book, The Four Loves. That friendship begins at that you too moment where you go, you too like that? Right? So think about this. Like uh, when I went off to college, I, I went to a very small school in a very small town in South Carolina. It was in the middle of nowhere. There was no interstate nearby. You had to take these back roads to get there. And I was from Canada, right? In this little tiny town. And somewhere along my sophomore, junior year, another Canadian showed up. I was on the baseball team. He's on the basketball team. And so I remember going up to him and going, hey, you're from Canada, eh? (laughs) I didn't say that. I didn't say, hey. Uh, I wanted to make him feel at home. Um, So, no, but you're from Canada. So am I. You too, me too. And we, you know, we had this momentary connection. 
And you know what this is like, right? It's, it's that occasion when you're in the UK or Paris or, or some other country and you're on this tour and you find out someone else is from Roanoke. It's like, you too? This is amazing. You know, we're going to be best buds for the next tour, right? But, but what happens? Well, I made that connection with the other Canadian and we never spoke again. <laughs> we had this you too moment. But when these moments, when these connections, when these relationships are built simply around affinity or like or country of origin or place, they are fading and they dissolve and they fizzle away. Because affinity is not enough. It is not strong enough to hold us together. See, what the church has is something much deeper than affinity and much more significant than simply a social gathering. What we have is fellowship with one another that is the result of our fellowship with God. You see, our fellowship with one another, it is rooted ultimately in the life of Jesus. And it is rooted in the fellowship we have with him. That's what John says in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, we have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. We have fellowship with Jesus. We are united to him. I mean, listen to the way that Jesus describes it in his high priestly prayer. In John 17, as he's praying for his disciples and those who would come after him, when, as he's praying for us, he says this, God, Father, may they be in us. The glory that you have given me, I give to them. He prays, I in them, they may be with me and I in them. Do you hear that language that he's using to describe our relationship with him? Right? That's not casual. That's not momentary. It is union. It is connected. I in them and them in me, that they may be in us. We are united to Christ and have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. We're united to Christ today. If you are believing in Jesus and resting in his work on your behalf, if you are trusting in him and him alone, you are united to Christ today and always. You have fellowship with him. Be assured of that. And I have to tell you, as amazing as that is, that we are united to Christ. There are times in my life, and maybe you can relate to this, there are times in my life when I've thought, you know, I just wish Jesus was here, though. I wish he was right in front of me. I wish he was in the flesh. I, I wish I could see him and hear him and, and touch him. I, I wish he could answer that question that has been plaguing me for like days and months and years, right? I, I wish he was here and, and he could tell me how I was supposed to deal with that circumstance and how I was supposed to engage with that person and what I was supposed to do, right? Like, because if he was here, I wouldn't struggle with that sin. And I wouldn't struggle with that temptation. And if he was here, I, I, I would fill in the blank. I mean, y'all have thought that, right? 
If only he could be here right now. Of course you have. I have. But what John is telling us is that though Jesus isn't with us in the flesh, we still have fellowship with him. We are united to him because of what Christ has done. The Spirit unites us to Christ. Do you remember Jesus actually said it was better for him to go away? He said that to his disciples. As crazy as that might sound to us, he said, it is better that I go away because as I go away, I will send the Spirit upon you. And the Spirit of truth who will lead you in all truth and will remind you of what I taught you. and Unite us to Christ. And so, friends, we actually do hear from Christ. We hear him in his word. And we do know his ways because his spirit testifies with our spirit of the way in which we are to go. And we do have fellowship with him. Even now, as he reigns on David's throne, as he is in heaven ruling over this world, we have fellowship with him by means of his spirit. And so we don't have to long for his presence right now because we have it through his spirit. We have fellowship with him. And because of that fellowship, we have joy. That's what John says. That's how he ends this section. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, commentators think that this phrase, our joy, it's not just speaking about John and the people that he's with. Like, like that they're proclaiming this, you've embraced it, you have fellowship, and so our joy is made complete. No, it's more than that. See, most commentators think that this is what's called an inclusive plural. And so it includes John and the we of the other verse, earlier verses, but it also includes the hearers. It's their joy and our joy. The joy that John and the others experience of proclaiming eternal life, of watching others being brought into the church, of experiencing the fellowship with God and with one another, that is a joy not just for John, the proclaimer, or for the observer, but it's also a joy for us, the receivers. This is the joy for those who have heard the proclamation of eternal life and fellowship with God and his people. This is the joy that we can have, that we have today, that we have because eternal life has come, because we have fellowship with one another and with God. This is joy. Friends, there are many things we could promote in this world. There are many things we could encourage others to believe and follow. There are many things we can proclaim to our neighbor and to one another. And we could even say this will bring you joy. This will bring you happiness. There are many things that we could proclaim. But as followers of Christ, what we proclaim is that true joy is found in fellowship with one another and with God. As followers of Christ, what we proclaim is that true joy is experienced when we know the source of eternal life. When we know Christ and are united to him, that is where joy is found. And so, people of God, be assured. Be assured today that the faith that you embrace, that the one that you are looking to, that Jesus, he is man, fully God and fully man. The transcendent has become imminent. Be assured of the life that he gives. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have sent our Lord Jesus, this one who has come in the flesh to bring eternal life. 
And so we trust and rest in him, and we ask that you would give us assurance, not by our works, not by our words, but by your spirit of the salvation that he has given. Let us rest in him and let us live lives full of joy because of the life that he has given. Help us to do that today in all of our days so that you would be made much of. We pray all this in Christ's name and God's people said together, amen.